As we, as we wait here for the equipment to turn on, would you, in your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 24. That's what we're going to read from today, like we did last time we were uh, together. And as you do that, also notice that um, in the bulletin there is an insert from where... Um, so it's going to be, a, it's a good, um, a good devotional for you. Just one second. I'm sorry about that. Thank you, Louis. <laughs> Wait for some numbers to show up. So the numbers that show up are actually random social security from all the people in the church. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I found that for all line. <laughs> Well, we're going to read verses 15, starting verse 15 um, through 28. Uh, we continue to hopefully finish the subject of the tribulation as taught in the scriptures today. It's impossible to talk about the tribulation without also talking about the coming of Christ, because in theology it's always put in terms of the return of Christ and the resurrection. And so you can see that we can divide these things into categories so that makes it a little easier for us to study them. But theology really goes together. Uh, you know, the Jesuits in the past tried to figure out what's the minimum amount of stuff you can believe and still being a, a Christian. And uh, so that when they go to the mission field, they don't have to ask the people to change much. You know, if you can come up with the, amount, the minimum amount of belief. The problem is that Christianity... The religion of the Bible, at least, is everything so connected that it's difficult to say, oh, if you don't believe this, it's still okay. If you don't believe that, if it's, still, it's still okay. And we see that in, when studying eschatology as well. It's difficult to split it into all its different parts because they're so connected there. Uh, Matthew 24, starting verse 15, this is what's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the slopes of Mount, Olive, uh, the Mount of Olives, looking back into Jerusalem, answering a question that the disciples asked in, cha- in verse 3 of this chapter. And you find uh, not only here in Matthew 24, but you're going to find it in Mark chapter 13 and in Luke chapter 21. Those are the three chapters where the Olivet Discourse is found. It's not in John, as we would expect, since uh, 90 plus percent of John is not in the three uh, other Gospels John wrote, knowing that these three other Gospels were in circulation as well, so he didn't want to repeat a lot of the stuff. He added uh, other things, uh, so that, which is great, because then we have a, a, more, a fuller knowledge of the life of Christ. So Matthew 5, uh, 24, starting at verse 15. Therefore, when we see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or in the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, 
such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner, inner rooms, do not believe. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes through the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For whatever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. and The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the, the heaven to the other. I don't know if you notice, but our Lord has given us a lot of information about the events surrounding his coming. We don't, we don't have any shortage of, of verses, if you're going to count how many verses are in the New Testament, or even in the Old Testament regarding his second coming. There is a lot of information he also told us to look for the signs of that, to be aware of things that might be going on around uh, the time that he comes. Hopefully this morning we're going to finish looking at the scriptural teaching regarding the uh, tribulation. And I know that some of you have, uh, have strong and long-held convictions of this, in this area. And they are convictions that they arrive by uh, long and hard studies. And I appreciate your patience with me as I teach uh, this series, and uh, um, in essence, often tell you that what you believe is not right. If in essence, if I, if I if what I'm saying is biblical, then that's what I'm saying. So I thank you for your patience. I thank you for still talking to me afterwards. Uh, I am sorry about all the jokes that I've made about uh, millennialism and postmillennialism. I'll try to refrain from making those jokes or for. Um, stating how right I am in uh, all that I'm, I'm saying. That was not, that was not being helpful. So uh, hopefully uh, this will be more helpful. Let's just review the timeline of historic premillennialism. We can call it also covenantal premillennialism because it understands uh, God dealing with his people in a covenantal way. Um, these are the, the, the events that... Uh, uh, historic premillennialists would see happening in the future, a great tribulation still happening in the future, the physical bodily return of Christ and the resurrection of the believers. You um, can see that in Revelation 4, uh, 20, verse 4. Uh, the new heavens and new earth happening at that time. Uh, Sonia asked me last time that we're together, do you, when does the new heavens and new earth happen in your scheme? Well, in my scheme, the, they happen at the coming of Jesus Christ which means that there will be a, uh, right, uh, a sin, the, the curse of, the sin, of sin will be removed, but there will be sinful people on this 
earth. So I understand that that is what I'm saying. If you're wondering, are you saying that? Yes, that's what I what I'm saying. There, it's, there are two. Um, how do you call it? The word escaped my mind. Precedents for this in the Bible. One is uh, Adam and Eve's presence in the garden while sinners. No, God did not expel them from the and did not curse the world immediately. So there's some length of time, whatever that length of time was, that Adam and Eve, as sinful beings, were in a perfect world that had not yet been cursed by sin. And the other example is the other way around, where we have Jesus resurrected with his resurrection body present in a sin-cursed world. So you have a precedent for this idea. Uh, then that, uh, that is followed by a thousand-year physical reign on earth. Again, that thousand-year number is in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Followed by a rebellion of unbelievers led by Satan. And uh, so that everybody knows this is a common teaching of all eschatological positions. That at the end of the millennium, whatever, however you define that millennium, if you're a post-millennialist or a non-millennialist, you define as a long period of time, of undetermined time, all these positions have a rebellion at the end of this, of this millennium. So it's not exclusive to covenantal premillennialism. It's present in all the different positions there. Uh, following that, uh, following that uh, rebellion, then the resurrection of the unbelievers for judgment, then the final judgment and the eternal state from that point on. The eternal state is going to look a lot like it, the millennium did, except for no sinners uh, present there. So in that sense, the millennium is just an introduction, introductory period, a blip right on the radar screen. When you compare a thousand years to eternity, it's mathematically insignificant. Does it make sense what I'm saying? So, so this little blip has introduced, it introduces the eternal state. Any questions about the things I said? Yes, Doug. I'm Captain Obvious, so it's good. So, if the return of Christ and the resurrection of believers, yes. So, believers will not die during the thousand year reign, but unbelievers will continue. That's correct. Yes, so no death for unbelievers during the millennium. Did you say no death for believers? Yeah, no death for believers in the millennium, but unbelievers will continue uh, to die at that time. Though, you know. Even unbelievers might live longer life because of the removal of curse and, uh, uh, and so on. So some other things would be a cleaner world, I guess. Any other questions? Yes? And that would be a time of great evangelism? No, no salvation after the return of Christ. Yes. Any other questions before we continue? All right, so let's take a look at the Great Tribulation and in the Synoptic Gospels, so that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Epistles. So in essence, let's take a look at the Great Tribulation in three quarters of the, of the New Testament. That's our goal uh, for the next couple of minutes here. Now, as of the utmost importance that we understand that the way that Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 are structured, they are structured in response to a question asked by the disciples. Uh, a lot of times people put a lot of 
uh, weight on the order of the events and so on. But Jesus is answering exactly a question that was asked in, in Matthew 24, verse 3. We find that question throughout the, um, the synoptics. And look at verse 3 of Matthew 24. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? So that's question one. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So these are the three-part question. The three-part question that the disciples asked Jesus. Because if you look at earlier in, in the verse two verses of the chapter, Jesus pointed their attention to the temple. And he said that that's going to be destroyed and, and so on. And they want to know what is going on there. So it's important that we realize that Jesus is not trying to address everything that, uh, concerning his return, future events, and so on. He's trying to answer the question that the disciples asked in the order that um, they asked. And, and I think as you, we read through this chapter, most of it today, you see that this chapter, and we're going to be see, that, see that's true of Matthew, Mark 13 and Luke 21, they attach the tribulation to the physical bodily return of Christ. If you look at verse 29, there Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they, see the Son of, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So here, Jesus puts his coming, his return, um, right after the events of the, this tribulation that he has described here. Um, they also, the, 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 the three Gospels that uh, include this particular discourse, teach that the disciples will be on earth until the glorious return of Christ to judge the nations. Says that the, the disciples of Christ are going to be there. Uh, if you can see that in verse 22, where he says the disciples are to endure the tribulations and persecutions that will precede the coming of Christ. Look at verse 22. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And then there are uh, also references to these things happening to this generation and you seeing what the, the Lord is going to do, talking about the people that uh, were there. And uh, some see, see that, a justification to say that this great tribulation happened in the lifetime of those who heard Jesus' words uh, at, on, on that day. But there are, I think, at least two ways that we could understand this statement and should, that we could think of the disciples when Jesus addresses his disciples. One is that they are representative of the disciple of all disciples at all times. So in that sense, the disciples will be around when Christ returns. And you say, oh, that's stretching it. Well, we already did that in Matthew 16. When, when Jesus says that he's going to give the keys of the kingdom to the apostles. And we say, well, that's not Peter, because that would be the Pope, it's the church and the church through the ages. And we also do that in chapter 28 when Jesus says that he, he commends the disciples 
to go to the all, the all nations and proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And we understand that he's not just talking to those disciples, but they represent disciples from all ages. So we can think of the disciples here as the disciples of Christ throughout the ages that will be present at the coming of Jesus Christ. But also, Bible prophecy often refers to like events that happen at different times in the same prophecy. Remember, um, no, we think of it as a Christmas passage, uh, uh, Isaiah 11, where the, the, the sign given to Hezekiah, or not to Hezekiah, to Ahaz, is that a virgin will conceive, and she will born, uh, uh, be, you know, bear a son, and, and so on. And then, right after that, Isaiah also gives another prophecy that happens at the time of, uh, of Ahaz. And he doesn't differentiate between the two. He looks at them together from this perspective. And often we find that in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament. But when we flip it and look sideways, we see that it's referring to do chronologi- chronologically two different events that when seen from a distance look like the same, the same event. If you're coming from um, eastern Washington in, back to western Washington, and, you know, coming to camp from camp, one of the most glorious times of the year is coming home from camp. Um, <laughs> And you start to think you're almost home when you see the Cascades as one solid kind of blur um, chain on the horizon. You can't distinguish the peaks. You think it looks like just one single wall on the horizon. The closer you get, then you can see, no, there are peaks that are closer, there are peaks that are further. And sometimes prophecy in the Bible is just like that. Why I'm saying that? I'm saying that so that I can suggest to you that the Olivet Discourse, which is this passage that we're reading here today, and and Luke 21 and Mark 13, speak both of the destruction of Jerusalem and of the ultimate great tribulation. Both of those things are present here. That Jesus is going back and forth between events that are about to happen and events that will happen far in the future. And, And that's consistent with prophecy in the Bible. So Jesus speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem, especially in Luke 21. That's very evident in Luke 21. But as a type, he speaks of that as a type, as an example, as something that to help us understand that final tribulation. In essence, the destruction of Jerusalem is a microcosm, a test case of, for what's going to happen at the return of Jesus Christ. Any questions before I continue? All right. Also notice that the days of the tribulation described here by Christ are equated with the days of Noah. Look at verse 36 through 34. Matthew 36, or Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah, that as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the, the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So all will be. So also will be. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
So the one event that Christ says, what, what can I equate this tribulation of describing to you with? What, what is a good example? And he says, well, the days of Noah, the flood is a good example of what I'm describing here. And you can read of those days in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 6, where there, uh, Genesis says that God even regretted having created man because humanity had turned out to be so wicked. And he recreated humanity through the flood. While Noah and his family, the, the believers of the time, were aware of the tribulation, the unbelievers disregarded all the warnings that uh, Noah had given them. And they just went about life in a wicked way as if they had had no warning. In, uh, in uh, Second Peter, Peter says that for 120 years, Noah preached repentance to them. Noah is called the preacher of righteousness. And as, look, for 120 years, as he's building the ark, he's talking about the impending judgment of God. And yet, that was the people disregarded that. that they were immensely immoral at the time of Noah. They refused to hear what God was saying. They ignored the building of the ark. Uh, that's all part of the description of what it meant to be in the days of Noah. But also notice that the flood was universal, a, a, universe, a universal judgment on the nations for their unbelief and refusal to respond in faith to the gospel. And that's the pattern that, of the end times as well that Jesus brings up here. So it's important for us to understand that the one event that Christ uses to illustrate what he's talking about is not a localized event. It's something that's all over the world. Any questions before we continue? Jerry? We're going to get to First Thessalonians at some point, I promise. Okay, let's say it. In verse 29, it says that not even the sun knows the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in my mind, since Jesus and God are God, how come Jesus doesn't know? Because, remember, Jesus is both divine and human. And the two natures, so he's fully God and he's fully human, the two natures never confuse themselves, never, one doesn't bleed into the other. So as man, Jesus was not omniscient. He did not know everything. As man, he only knew what the Holy Spirit either revealed to him, right, because that's how man learns, or through learning of the, in, in life and studying and experience and so on. So I think that's what he means here. That because as God, he knows everything that the Father knows. The Spirit knows everything the Father knows. Because it's not three gods. It's three persons in one God. So is, I think he's speaking here as, 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 as human. And I think we should take most statements by Jesus in the Gospels as Jesus the man speaking, not the Son, God the Son speaking at that point. Okay, does he know now? I don't know. He might. Yeah. Yes, Andrew. But he would never say anything that contradicted the God, right? That's correct. Okay, just double check. Yeah. <laughs> anything else? All right. Uh, so continue then. I want you to uh, notice that this, this tribulation is marked by false religious claims. Look at verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. 
Look at verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And look at verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will rise. Sorry, it looks like my screen has appeared. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So there's great uh, claims of false religion around this time in which Christ is coming back. Would you, I was going to show on the slide, but it disappeared. So would you turn to 2 Thessalonians, almost there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. It says, 2 Corinthians 2, 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the, the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul's teaching agrees with Jesus' teaching, that there will be marked false religious claims at the coming, uh, the time of this great tribulation that precedes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to this passage in a little bit. Uh, We'll also see that the tribulation will include a time of great civil unrest throughout the world. I hope you keep your finger on Matthew 24 because we're going back there. That's another thing that Jesus says, that this period of tribulation that he's teaching is going to be marked by a period of great world turmoil, civil unrest. Not just religious unrest, but also civil unrest. Look at verses 7 and 8 of Matthew 24. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places, all these are the beginnings, the beginning of sorrows. Again, uh, it's important for you to notice that he's not talking about local unrest, civil unrest, but the idea of nations against nations and kingdoms against, uh, against kingdoms and so on. Any questions before we continue? Rick? Yes. No, because it actually says the opposite, right? It says, 
it was so bad that even if possible, which is not, oh, okay. the elect would be deceived. So he's saying, is a picture, is stating something that's impossible to see how bad uh, it is. Okay. Any other questions before we continue? All right. Uh, also, the end, which in my view includes the tribulation, the return of Christ and his millennial kingdom, will not come till the entire world has been evangelized. Look at verse 14. Oh, good. Wrong chapter. I wasn't going to make any sense. Um, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. (coughs) That was not a COVID cough. So it says that the whole world will be evangelized. Now, it's important that uh, we understand that being evangelized is not the same as being saved. Do you see the difference? You can evangelize somebody, and that evangelism may not result in their being born again, their being saved. So Jesus is not claiming, it's consistent with it, but he's not claiming that the whole world will be saved, but he's claiming that the whole world will hear the gospel. And... uh, that has never happened. No. Uh, even if we, we allow for places where we have heard the gospel before and now are, you know, have abandoned Christianity, as counting as having heard the gospel, there are people's group that never heard the gospel in the entire existence of the world. So that, that, that hasn't happened. It's interesting that Spurgeon uh, uh, no, struggled with this because he saw the gospel going to the whole world as the whole world being saved. That's, they saw that that's what, not the whole world being saved, but people from every ethnic group being saved. That's how he saw this, this promise. And he struggled, how is that ever going to be accomplished? So Spurgeon the Baptist came up with the following resolution. It says that the babies of all these nations who die in infancy go to heaven. Therefore, then, they are, there'll be people from all nations and ethnicities in heaven because their babies who died in infancy are in heaven and represent them. So he came up with a very Presbyterian solution to his, uh, to his uh, dilemma. Um, it's not something that we hold as a church, uh, that all babies die in infancy go to heaven. Uh, we do believe that God has a special relationship with the children of believers, and that those the children of believers who died in infancy then are in a special relationship with God, and somehow God infuses or... Uh, creates faith in that uh, child and, and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to that child and upon the merits of Christ that child goes to heaven. But no questions on that because it's completely not what we're talking about. Any questions about verse 14, the idea that the whole world is uh, going to hear the gospel of this king, uh, this gospel, the gospel of the king before the Lord returns. Doug. Which gets a bad rap. If you actually read about it, that was a very good question at the time. But anyway, go ahead. Um, so project forward, the tribulation is ended. Um, believer marries an unbeliever. The unbeliever is pregnant. The Lord comes. So uh, then that child, according to 1 Corinthians 7, is in a special issue with the Lord because it takes one believing parent for that child to be sanctified. During the thousand year reign, someone could 
if, if, if that child dies in infancy. What if that child lives? <laughs> then, then the child lives and goes to hell. If it, so. And, and doesn't Christ address that? Woe to you if you're pregnant on that day. So, yes, Sonia. I, I knew I shouldn't have that talked about babies. I, I knew it was going to create a problem. <laughs> Correct. So are we still having babies? No. No babies. <laughs> they probably could. Yes. All right. All right, moving on from babies. Uh, this, this, tribulation, <laughs> this tribulation period includes a leading figure, figure or a system that directs the nations away from Christ. We read that, uh, go back here to 2 Thessalonians 2, right, the, the lawless man. John, in 1 John, calls him the Antichrist. I think they're referring to the same, the same system or person. Um, but there is some system or a person that will lead the nations away from Christ, as Paul says. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Because that statement there seems like there's a religious uh, aspect to this lawless one, either if a system or a person. Uh, our Reformed forefathers, at least in the Puritan era, believed that this was the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so that's why I keep on saying a system or a person uh, there. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Uh, if you look at the whole passage that we did before, it seems like God is the one preventing this from happening. Um, or, and then he says that some, something is going to be removed and the lawless one will be able to deceive at that point, some have seen that as the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, the, the New King James says, believes that it's the Holy Spirit because it capitalizes the references to the one that's going to be removed. But there's, nobody really knows what that removal is. All right, now we're going to bring back together all the brethren that are Reformed. There's either Amillennialist or Postmillennialist in the next part because we should be in agreement, at least our systems agree on this one, when we talk about the rapture. What about the rapture? We're getting there, Jerry? Getting close to 1 Thessalonians. But we only have two minutes left, so... <laughs> <laughs> no time for questions. Well, no time for 1 Thessalonians either. Um, <laughs> so what about the rapture? You've heard this term before, I think, right? Everybody, I think, that's alive in church for the last few years have heard the term rapture. If you like the Tim LaHaye, you know, that's kind of the whole premise of the Left Behind uh, series. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know... So, you know that something's very wrong when the main actor is uh, Nicolas Cage in your movies. It's, it's, some, it's from Satan himself. But anyway, uh, uh, what about the rapture? Uh, the word rapture comes from a French word that means carrying it off. And that's really what that word is used 
is often used in, in theology to mean a secret return of Christ and a secret removal from earth of all the believers prior to the great tribulation. That's usually what the word wrath is um, used. This doctrine is seen in texts like Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, where it says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. But the ultimate passage for the rapture, according to uh, people who believe in this secret coming and this secret removal of Christians of the world, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. And that's where we begin next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Any questions about the things that were said here this morning? Andrew? Denominationally and confessionally, we don't have a position on, infant, on the destinations of those who die in infancy, correct? Actually, we do. What is the... the all infants go to heaven. All infants die in infancy go to heaven. That's, that's our denomination that's position. That's our denomination. Yep, it's in our constitution. All infants. It's actually in the declaratory statement we have constitutional confessional power in our Constitution. Okay, my understanding that that was just a position of agnosticism. No, if you read the, 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 the declaratory statement, it actually states that the children... Um, it says, we do not believe that the statement regarding the elect children dying infancy teaches that any children goes to hell. To hell anything like Something like that. If you want me to read for everybody else's clarity... No. No, <laughs> because we're done. But yeah, that, that's some, the nation's position is, they can go online and check that out is that uh, every child dying, every infant dying infancy goes to heaven. And that was the uh, standard person position under Hodge, under Hodges in the heyday of Princeton. So. All right. Thank you, guys. We'll be dismissed. We'll pray and be dismissed, and then we'll start our service at 11. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are God who speaks to us. We thank you that we can be assured that... Uh, our Lord Jesus is coming back for us and that we'll be with him forever. We thank you that we can live in that hope even now. And we can worship you this morning in that hope. So bless us as we move into our time of worship. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.